0: Welcome to the Radical Lifestyle Podcast brought to you by Generation to Generation where you will be inspired by the past, equipped for the present and prepared for the future as we engage in conversations with people from around the world. Hello everyone this is Andrew and Daphne from Generation to Generation and our guest today is Shanna Fold. Shanna for people that don't know who you are can you just say a bit about where you're from and what you do?
1: Sure my name is Shanna Fold and you pronounced my name precisely correct, so thank you for that. (laughs) I appreciate that greatly. It's a bit easier
0: than some of the Chinese names I've had to pronounce. That's been quite tricky.
1: (laughs) Good. Um, I am from South Queens, New York City. Uh, I've been living in Israel for somewhere between two and three years. I recently came back from New York. I actually got stuck there for eight months because I wasn't officially a citizen, And so I left to go to a wedding and then I was not welcomed to come back into Israel because I wasn't a citizen. But I, as of six weeks ago, became a full citizen. So I'm now an American citizen and an Israeli citizen. I've been working in the worlds of journalism since I'm 17 years old, so 10 years. And I am super passionate about words i love words and i love to take big ideas and concepts and a lot of information and make it easy and in simple words so that everyone can understand that's what i that's what i like to do that's my favorite thing to do and whether i do it in a podcast or in a news article or however i manage to get it out there that's what i'm always striving to achieve
0: Mm, we love that uh we are always very appreciative of very, very clever people that can make very complicated things simple. Um, so, you. <laughs> so well, you're one of the people we appreciate very much.
2: One of Thanks. my phrases is, "Doesn't matter how sim- how clever you are, if you can't make it easy enough for even a child to understand, you're not that clever."
1: Oh, I agree with that, and and more than that, um, it's actually a waste to be so smart and have such good information if you're not going to be able to share it in a way that other people can. So, And and what I do is I run a show called the Israel Daily News Podcast. It's a podcast that comes out Monday through Thursday, and it's about 10 to 15 minutes long. It has the top five news stories that are coming out of Israel from that day. So I scour the news, I go through all of the sources, and I pick my five stories usually i'll do people are always asking me what do you cover what do you cover and i always think it's silly because it's the israel daily news i cover the daily news of israel the general news so i'll do a few you know whatever's the top so maybe it's a couple of security stories a couple of politics stories and um i try to end each show with a good fun story maybe something about technology innovation health or um an archaeological find something that leaves people feeling really good and then the show ends with a song from an up and coming israeli or jewish or arabic Artist, and um, I use people who are lesser known. So people who are recording Mm. music and have a day job, or are trying to get big, and they have wonderful music. And I'll tell them if it's if it's good enough, if you have an MP3, if it sounds professional, I'll I'll play it. So I I have also been encouraging a lot of artists here through that. And and aside from that, um I'm a full-time freelancer, so when I'm not doing the podcast, I'm researching for a film. I write for Haaretz. I wrote for the Jerusalem Post for upwards of 2 years and um do lots of TV and any any type of media gigs that come my way that I think are matim. That's how we say in Hebrew. It means that it's a good fit. Hmm. Well, you're not very busy then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad
2: you thought that we were a good thing and decided to come on.
0: Um, you mentioned that you have a podcast, a daily Israel Daily News. Where can people find that?
1: That podcast is out on Spotify, Google, Apple, and any podcast platform where... We're podcasting through eight different platforms. It's distributed through eight different platforms. So wherever people are listening to their podcast, you can find it. You just type in Israel Daily News Podcast or type in my name, S-H-A-N-N-A-F-U-L-D. My name has two N's in it.
0: I'll find some of the main ones. I'll stick them in the description box so people can find them real easy after they hear this. Take us back a little bit, though. So when was it that you decided you wanted to be in journalism?
1: I wanted to be in the media world when I was 12. Let's go even back. I uh, have a little picture of myself that I made in kindergarten that my mom saved. And and each of us had to write what we were going to be. And I wrote that I was going to be an author. And that was five years old. So I believe I've always loved story time. I've always loved words and I've always found myself there. Fast forward to 12 years old, I have a teacher named Mrs. Fash. And we, for some reason in my middle school, had a state of the art uh, control room and TV studio where I got to really play. And we had this media class. And I remember this day where Mrs. Fash asked who wanted to host the mock show. And I think I was the only one that raised my hands and I couldn't believe it. I was like, I thought that everyone was going to be raising their hands and that there was going to be tons of competition and I was going to have to fight my way. <laughs> and I believe I was the only one. And somehow I, I got in there and I did lots of things public tv through the queen's public access channel through our middle school so i'm in i think i was in sixth or seventh grade at the time and that's when i knew that i loved it i loved i i remember i hosted a delegation of chinese businessmen on this show and i was 12 years old and i loved it and i was good at it and i found it natural and um i held on to that dream i went to a math and science school for high school, so there wasn't tons of writing opportunities. But whatever was available, I did it. So there, we—I mm. created a magazine. I wrote. Um, I wrote a theatrical performance in my in my senior year of high school, and I always held on to the journalism thing that I had in my head. And every morning, I watched a local TV program called New York One News. And I ended up working there. It was my dream to work there. It was a local New York City station. I knew every anchor. I knew every reporter, first and last name. I knew what they covered. I was obsessed. I watched it every day. And um, so I held on to that. And then in college, when I was ready to go to college, everyone pointed me toward SUNY Oswego. And SUNY stands for State University of New York. And they all pointed me to the school that I had never even heard about and never even knew existed. It's on Lake Ontario between New York and Canada, mm. and they have a great broadcasting program. and And basically, everyone told me that if I wanted to stay in the state, I should go there. And I, I, uh, I'll tell you a, a last uh, tidbit. I came to. Israel for a summer vacation with my cousin the summer before going to college. And I was at the Hilton Hotel. We were using, my cousin and I were using all of her mom's points so that we could stay at the room in the Hilton and we had a great time. And Wolf Blitzer walked through the door, a famous CNN news anchor. And um, my cousin said, Oh my God, that's Wolf Blitzer. So I ran up to him in my bikini at the pool. And <laughs> that got his <doctor's> attention. <laughs> <laughs> I had no time. I had no time to waste. I had to go. I seized the moment. I, yeah. I seized the moment. I ran up in my bikini and I said, Hi, I'm Shana Folds and I want to be a journalist just like you. What, can you give me some advice? What should I do so I can be like you? And he said, Join your school newspaper. That was it. Day one, I blew into the school newspaper. Hi, I'm Shanna Fold. I want to work here. I want to write here, and I uh, I wrote for them. And I continued, and I did some work at the TV station. and And the TV station was a lot of technical. I learned how to shoot. I learned how to edit. I learned how to go on camera. I learned how to do all the technical stuff. But I always insist for journalists that talk to me you got to join your school newspaper because all of the integral journalistic things that you're going to learn are going to be at the newspaper and then you have to figure out how to transfer that into the more short form video stuff that you're going to do but all of the all of the morals and ethics and dilemmas that come up come up in the in the world of the of print so he was really he gave me excellent advice
2: Hmm. You must have wondered at the Times School newspaper. That wasn't where my um, ambitions were set.
1: Did you think that? I did because I was interested in the glamour of TV. (laughs) But I always loved to write and I actually wanted to be a journalism major. I I was a broadcast. I was a broadcast journalism major, not a journalism major. And I did that because my father told me that there was no future in the print journalism world. And he was very concerned that he was going to send me to school and I was not going to be employed when I came out. So I somehow said, well, what about broad? What if I study TV? And he he agreed. Um, Hmm. So and and that's how that's how it went.
2: So would you say you're into investigative journalism or are you really looking at what's out there and then pulling from it and putting it out yourself?
1: So I I am interested in a range of things. What I'll say is with the podcast, I started it about 14 or 15 months ago and it left me in a place where i actually didn't have the time and resources to do as many investigations mm. the thing about being a news reporter in a in a newsroom is that you might be given an assignment that you can take and you have resources and you have producers and people that you can work with so that you're not the only one so mm. in this in 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 this um scenario i'm kind of the host and the news anchor and so my job is to present the news and Mm -hmm. to make the news available so i would say that i've taken a back seat to investigations uh but i am working on a project that i can't fully disclose but it's much more investigative than anything uh that i've been working on in the last year and uh, I'm doing a lot of reading and a lot of research for it. So I, I'm interested in investigations, but I'm I don't think that it has my heart as much as I enjoy writing a script and taking taking a lot of information that maybe somebody else found and making it, finding a beauty in the language and finding a way to express it, presenting it. And the stories that I like to do, the story, the original stories I like to do are usually about art and culture. Those are the stories that I, I want to investigate. I want to sit down with artists and ask them questions and find out about their past and things like that. Hmm. And during, and and I did that for the Jerusalem Post for two years. And during COVID-19, the arts were so disseminated, they were, they were, they were just blown out, you know, the, the concerts and the venues that I mm-hmm. used to go to, they were closed. So I kind of moved into a very political, hard news realm, because that's what people needed during this mm-hmm. last, during these years of COVID.
0: Is that what inspired the podcast? COVID?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, um... When COVID hit, most newsrooms let go of their freelancers and let go of people that weren't hard news, hard politics, hard security. So all of that fluffy, you know, it's just like government. They always, the first thing that they do is they they get rid of the arts programs. They get rid of the theater programs, which I always, I think is the biggest mistake ever, 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 ever. Um, so these were the people that were let go. So a lot of my freelance work, you know, stopped getting calls, stopped being asked to come in to do hits. And I said, I, I can't exist without doing the news. I hate not doing the news. I need to do the news. So I, um, so I said, I'm going to do the news and I'm going to do it myself. And the most accessible way for me to be able to do this, now I have a team. But when I started, I did everything just myself. And the most accessible way for me to do it was via podcast. So definitely COVID-19 definitely pushed me into this.
0: It's the same for us. That's where this thing kicked off from. And uh, you're right when, you know, they they get rid of the arts programs, all those kinds of things, because they're all sort of expendable, if you like. And they keep all the politics stuff and the hardline news, as you say. And the reality is you get rid of the arts it drives everyone insane it like no one can handle just having politics and the sad news crammed down their throat constantly and people will come to us all the time and say i just can't deal with all this stuff like i have to unplug i just can't watch tv anymore i've stopped watching the news because they're just going mad watching it all and so you know even in england um you know, that they, they stopped, this won't mean as much to you, but they stopped uh, football, real football, not soccer, real football, uh, shut all of it down. Uh, for so many people, that's an outlet for them. And so the relief for for the public when sports and things like that started to happen again, that outlet for them where they could shut their brain off was huge.
2: I mean, the
1: public being you.
0: Mostly me, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But <laughs> still, it was a big relief for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you are definitely part of the public though. If you're a lot I think that if you're feeling it, everyone's feeling it. That's my thought.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. So I would imagine um anything that is investigative whether it's book writing, whether you got a lot of research, whatever it is, I think I would find it really hard cuz it's just me guessing probably Eighty to ninety percent of what you find out, you never use, and you 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 only use some of what you're best, I mean, I, this is just my picture. I imagine you're looking here and looking there, looking here, and you, you're building up all this research, and then you're pulling it right the way down, and you're just delivering a podcast or something like that. <laughs> I think I, I think I would find that very disheartening.
1: So I. I used to get very disheartened about that when I was a nighttime writer at New York One News and I had to do 45 second stories. And oh, I used goodness. to say to my colleagues, but the people need to know, they need to know about the details. And I'd get, I'd really want to work in the extra stuff, the extraneous details, the things that happened before, the things that happened after. And you just can't, you, you just can't. And over time, I think that I've learned to accept it because my view is that it's better for multiple people to be informed on five stories than it is for two people to be in depth informed with two stories. Mm -hmm. So because you're not, you're going to have the general public that wants to get caught up quickly. That's my line.
2: Yeah.
1: I always say that in my podcast, I'm here to get you caught up quickly Um, And I recognize that people just are not sitting down and spending two hours and reading a very long-winded article or listening to a 45-minute podcast about one subject unless they're really interested and dedicated to it. So yeah, that is really hard for me. However... I think that one of the beautiful things about where we're at today is that there are so many different media outlets that you can find a place. So for example, Mm. when I published for Haaretz, they give me the space to add in all those extra details and they encourage it and they ask me for it and they tell me to take my time. And I'm working on something for them that I've been working on for more than a month now. And they really want me to spend the time and effort, find the right people. I explained there are people that I need to interview, but I can't get in touch with them right now. So, okay, take Mm. your time. So there are those outlets that are going to give you the extra room to get all the details in. And then there are the platforms like my podcast, which is 10 to 15 minutes. And what I do when I want to go in depth on something is I bring in an expert and I have them join me on Instagram live. So we do a live broadcast and I like it to be around 30 minutes. And I'll take one topic from the week that I think deserves or Needs a lot of explanation. And I'll ask all of my questions there. And I'll tell my audience if you're interested in this story, I'll give them the one minute version. And then I'll tell them if you're interested in this story, find the full interview on our Instagram page. You can listen to 30 or 40 minutes in which I'm going to flesh out all of your questions. And I welcome them to put their questions in the Instagram live, there's a chat box and I welcome them to put their questions in the chat box as well. And sometimes if it's really good, I'll cut a few minutes from the interview, just the audio, and I'll put it into the following podcast. Um, and then there have been two times that I actually just published the audio as its own podcast, because I recognize that, um, some people are just listening to me on Instagram, some people are just listening to me on the podcast. So I want to make it accessible for the people who, there are a lot of older people who listen to the show, and they don't use Instagram, it confuses them, they don't know how to do it, they don't want to log on. So if I feel like it's really important for them, I'll make sure that they can find it in the way that they've been finding my stuff in the past.
0: Yeah, that's really good. It's nice when you can find those outlets that are willing to let you express yourself in in the other ways and not Feel like you're constrained to just doing it one one way. Um, when you moved to Israel, what what prompted you to move to Israel or to make aliyah? Or maybe uh, you should explain what aliyah is, because there may be people listening that don't know what that means.
1: Well, making aliyah means getting your official citizenship to Israel. Uh, but the spiritual sort of identity part of it is the idea that you're um, returning home that you're returning home to the homelands, the place where the Jews came from, where we belong. And what prompted me, I've always really liked it here. I have an aunt and an uncle that live here, and I visited them many times throughout the years with my mom. And I always felt such a sense of freedom when I was in Israel. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was able to travel And in New York City, it's not that I wasn't able to travel, but I wasn't going from the north of the country to the south of the country on a train Mm. in the U.S. But in Israel, it's a little bit of a more safer community feel. So my mom would let me get on the train and go wherever I wanted for the day as long as I came back or if I had a place to stay, I'd stay overnight. So I think that it signified adventure Mm. to me from a young age. Yeah.
2: Um, it's interesting you say that, that you you felt safer, your mum let you go. Now, one of the misconceptions... This is exactly
0: what I was going to ask. Of, were you? Yeah, I was about to say this. Uh, Carry on
2: um that we meet all the time well it's dangerous out there oh you know it's you you can't go you'll get killed and I, i mean you wouldn't believe how often that's probably when we bring people out that's one of the first misconceptions we have to um make in fact there's only two we've traveled for about over 30 years to 14 over 40 nations and um Andrew and my daughter, they were children. They'd grown up travelling with me. And there were only two countries in the world that I trusted my daughter to go out, you know, in the evening and at night and, and not worry about.
0: When she was, like, 16 years old.
2: 15, 16. 15, 16. One was um, Israel and one was Singapore. And that people can't... It's just this... We were out during um, Operation Protective Edge. And apart from there not being many young people around, you wouldn't have known there was a war on. So I always Mm. like to get that point across when people are listening.
0: I'm sure you probably come across that as well. Do you hear that from people?
1: I do hear that from people. um, Well, I heard, you know, I had a, a neighbor in New York who said, I can't believe you're going to Israel. I'm scared to go to Florida from New York. Uh, on the plane, and I said, "Oh, that's why I've got to get out of here. I need to I need to, I need to be somewhere where where I'm spreading my wings and i'm not I'm not uh, feeling the sense of fear from people. So Israel is a really safe country, and I try to tell this to people, especially me. I worked the overnight desk at New York One News. And if you work the overnight desk, I'll tell you what that means. It means that you sit and you listen to the radio and you listen to the police um, radar and you get all these notifications and you have to keep log of them. Every night in New York City, there are multiple stabbings, multiple gunshots fired, um, and multiple fires. This is routine. Every um, Probably most cities around the world if you talk to the overnight desk guy, they'll tell you there were three, sh- there were three shootings last night. There was this, there was that. So um, I happen to know because I'm tracking New York City. I was tracking New York City statistics and security that it's much safer here. It's it's much safer. I feel much safer going out at night. I'm not nervous to walk home from a club at two o'clock in the morning. And people genuinely care for each other. And I've heard crazy stories from my friends. Like one friend of mine, some guy was kind of harassing her on the beach. Some other guy that she didn't know was paying attention, got up, approached, and um, got into an altercation with him on her behalf, and that's the kind of environment that it is. So Mm. I always tell people the threat here is actually existential. It's like an existential threat and not a day-to-day threat. So what do I mean by existential? I mean we are surrounded by nations that want to see our demise. We are living in a country that uh, the leaders of Iran routinely say they are going to bomb it off of the face of the map routinely outright in the media say we are going to get rid of Israel. Israel is not going to exist in 30 years. That was just came out a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So the threat is kind of like this big existential threat um, for our existence, but it's, I'm not scared usually uh, to be harassed or threatened um, on the streets. Thank Mm -hmm. God.
0: Oh, we'll come back to Israel. Uh, I just want to go back to New York for a second. When you're doing the night shift and you're just hearing all this crime constantly going on and having to cover that stuff, was that ever somewhat soul-destroying? Did you ever go back and think, what the heck am I doing here? Was it depressing? Like, how would you feel coming off those kinds of night shifts? Uh, The
1: night shift is a... The night shift made me so grateful. Uh, The the night shift made me grateful to be able to sleep in bed at night. Um, I think that was a huge thing for me. Like when I stopped being in, I remember the first night that I uh, didn't do the night shift and I was actually in my bed. I wanted to cry. I wanted to like from joy. I was so relieved to be in my bed at night. Um, but this is a really common thing that journalists do in order to show their grit in the industry and to prove that they are serious journalists and that they're willing to take the graveyard shift and they're willing to basically do anything to get in. And you have to prove your you, you have to prove yourself. you have to show your stripes, whatever that phrase. Um, so how did, I don't know that it was soul destroying. I do remember being paranoid about house fires because there were house fires every night in New York and I would be paranoid and I would come home and clear things away from the window and, um, unplug things and, I would send out emails to my family about fire safety <laughs> um, mm-hmm. because I was paranoid that my that, that I, we too were going to have a fire. And it's as you could imagine, fires are devastating and fires usually often they happen in the middle of the night and people aren't prepared for them. So I remember that that used to really freak me out. I wasn't super scared about crime on a day to day because I'm a New Yorker and I'm used to the subway and... And I'm used to, I, I you you get used to it, I mean, you guys are from a big city as well, and you you know it, so yeah,
0: yeah, that's interesting um okay, so back to Israel. um I wish it was this quick just to flip between countries traveling wise, yeah. but anyway, um can you talk a bit about how you see Israel right now? You've obviously had a switch in leadership um how do you see things in Israel at the minute?
1: uh in terms of government
0: yeah and how things are playing out um i mean are you happy yourself with the with the change of power um and i know i watched the i don't know what you would call it where they had inauguration inauguration i guess where the chaos ensued and everyone was shouting or getting thrown out of the room and that was quite the uh quite the show um, and then obviously Netanyahu has been saying, you know, I won't be out for long. I'll be back before you know it. Um, so uh, are you happy with the new government and, uh, will Netanyahu be back in, in a few minutes?
1: Well, I believe that the new government is a real source of diversity and I think that there are a lot of people who are really excited to see all these different voices at the table. There are more women holding Knesset or parliament seats now than ever before in history. There are more Mizrahi holding uh, seats. And Mizrahi means, um, technically it means east. It means people from Morocco and people from more eastern countries, dark Dark, uh, like they have darker skin and there are more, and that's been an issue in Israel since the founding of the country, that the people that came from Europe who had more money, more education were always given more opportunities. They always lived in communities that had better funding for their public schools. And this is, this is an issue. So to see about 30% of the Knesset be from, Arab countries is very exciting and I think a step in the right direction toward equity and oh, the women as well. A lot of people are saying that they're happy that the ultra Orthodox parties are, I don't want to call them, si- I don't want to say that they're silenced, but they've been removed from the majority. And a lot of people are happy about that because they feel that it doesn't represent the, demographic of israel i think that government should represent everyone and i think that this is a very diverse government so i think it's exciting one thing that i always talk about that is very important to me that i think not enough people are thinking about is the state budget so so people have asked me many times what do you think of the new government and i'll say this it's important to have a budget and in the last few years, there has not been a budget because there has not been a government. And when there's no government, there's no budget. Mm. And what does that mean? In my interviews with people, I will ask people, how's, how's your tech company coming along? How's your project? And people will say, oh, well, I was going to do that tech project, but the grant that the government promised me hasn't come through yet. I was going to send my kids to GAN, but the grant, and uh, the money that they give to subsidize it is not there. It's not present this year. So I would need to pay for it 100% myself. Um, there are hotlines for women that have been reduced from... Full time, uh, you could you used to be able to call up such a hotline all day long to report abuse in your home, and they cut back the hours. All of these government-funded programs have been at a standstill for years, and so I think that the important thing is for Israelis to try to give this government a chance so that things can move, so that people can get the money that they need, so that government programs can run. And it's something that you don't hear a lot of people talking about a lot. And I'm not sure why, but it's something that I personally talk about a lot because I think that it's the most important thing in this country is that uh, programs get funded. So that's what I think about this new government. I think that BB um, had... I think BB is a star in that he always had a very long-term vision for the country. And I think that's what sets a leader apart from your everyday person, somebody who can peer 20 years into the future and know what seeds you have to plant now in order to get the tallest tree in 20 years or to get the tree that bears the most fruit in 20 years. And that's what we've seen BB do. These Abraham Accords, the relationships that he's fostered with countries that we're now seeing that didn't happen in the last three or four months that has been cultivated over years of diploma of diplomacy and foreign affairs and massaging and meetings. And I mean, that's years in the making. So I think that he is the foreign minister extraordinaire. I think in the last couple of years, he may have, aside from COVID because he made a huge effort to get people vaccines, aside from COVID may have forgotten about the average problems of Israelis from a day to day, from their day to day needs. And I think that that's why you see people demonstrating in the streets and going to Balfour, which is the street that he lived on every single Uh, Saturday night for more than a year, you had protesters out there. So that's why you have the protesters there. I don't think that they're protesting his foreign relations policies. I think that they're protesting for the things that they need every day. Um, So I think that we now have a new prime minister. A lot of people I'm hearing, they say, let's give him a chance. Some people say, well, we didn't vote for him and he really shouldn't have this seat. That's a whole different discussion. And last note that I'll say about um, Yair Lapid, my last thought is he really put aside his ego and his potential political desires for two years in order to let Naftali Bennett have the first two years of this prime ministerial rotation with no insurance that he would get it in 2 years if this budget that was just proposed does not go through he won't have a prime ministerial position to sit in hmm. and he was willing to take that risk he went around to all of the different parties he shook everyone's hand so you know so to speak and he massaged and cobbled together the coalition that you see today and sacrificed himself, even though he had those 17 seats, which was the majority of the seats, and he really should have gone first as prime minister. But instead, he struck a deal with Naftali Bennett. He was able to bring more people to the table and he took a back seat. He'll come into the role in two years from now. I think that that's what a statesman does. I think that a true statesman He's caring about the state, um, so I, I think we have to give him a pat on the back for that.
2: Well, that's wow. that is a really good, a really good clear picture because the impression that I've had anyway is that it's all very well for us outside the country looking in, because as you say, Bibi on the world stage looked like he was. Star of the show And in many ways he was
0: Giving phenomenal speeches to the UN And all that kind of stuff Yeah, And and good
2: for him for doing it But what we weren't seeing Is what's going on in the day to life -life In Israel So that gives A a really clear Mm. A really clear balance
0: Obviously Right now um, Everyone's focused on Afghanistan um, The horrific footage which is coming out and you know you see the people running with the plane and then people dropping from the plane just trying to cling on um it says a lot about pe- what people are willing to do in order to try and get freedom um how does uh with an israel aspect to this how does the situation there with the taliban now coming back taking over the country how does that affect israel potentially
1: I don't want, I don't feel qualified to speak on how this affects Israel, but I do feel qualified to make um, comparisons to other terror groups in the region and what have happened in, what has happened in the past. And one thing that I actually want to talk about on the podcast tomorrow, I want to bring in an expert to talk about if there are any implications for Israel and likely there are because the Taliban is just another organization that, uh, I won't speak for them, but probably doesn't like Israel and probably would like to see Israel, uh, blown to smithereens. And that's because they associate Israel with the West, which is a dangerous road to go down because Israel is, An ally of the United States, but certainly a Middle Eastern country, certainly has a Middle Eastern culture, um, very different than what I'm used to, very different than what I've experienced in Western nations. And so one thing that a lot of people talk about here, uh, specifically Someone who I admire, his name is Rabbi Yehuda Hakohen. He speaks a lot about this topic, about how the East need every the, the whole world needs to see Israel as as a Middle Eastern country and not as a Western satellite in the Middle East, there to wreak havoc and give secrets to the U.S. They need to recognize that these Jews too are middle Eastern peoples and they are, they come from this region. They know all of us, all of the Jews, we we've had a diaspora. I may have fair colored skin because my family hid out in Europe for generations, but we are, we are from this area. We are originally Mm. from the middle East and we act as such. And if you come to Israel, you'll experience it and you'll see it. So What I'll say is that there are other terror groups in the region. So we can say there's Hamas in Gaza, there's Hezbollah in Lebanon, and these organizations typically enter when there's instability. I'm going to talk a little bit about Hezbollah, which I think there's definitely parallels. So Hezbollah represented a group of Shiite Muslims in Lebanon who did not have a lot of power, didn't have a lot of money and were underrepresented in their government. And Hezbollah came in and they brought funds with them the way that they got their funds, many different ways, um, through, through drug money through Iranian, uh, funding and they were able to prop up the people create community centers and uh, give representation to the people at the cost of their ideology um, of their radical ideology. And in a lot of what I'm reading, I'm learning that a lot of this is taught through religious schooling. So I find it fascinating here. We have a very similar scenario in Lebanon, Israel, Occupied South Lebanon for a long time, and the idea from Israel was that they would give provide stability in Lebanon, which has had a terrible economic crisis for century for for about a century, and uh, Israel came in and tried to be a stabilizing force and prop up the society, but. You had Hezbollah, which grew out of a desire to cleanse Lebanon of a Western presence. They wanted to get the U.S. out. They wanted to get the French out. They wanted to get Israel out. And one way to do that is through guerrilla warfare. And so you see that now with the Taliban. They waited. They played the long game. They waited the 20 years. They occasionally created havoc and violence and were able to successfully push out these colonialists as they saw them, the United States. And this happens all the time. This is a model that happens all the time. Even in Israel, the is Israel was successfully pushed out the British through guerrilla warfare. Um, And they were able to reclaim through guerrilla warfare. So you see this same type of, situation arise in many different communities and the the fear now in the fear now the difference between Israel and Afghanistan is that Israel wanted sovereignty over the nation and they wanted democracy the Taliban doesn't want democracy and so what we're talking about now is a is a mindset is a is a, this is a whole This is a whole concept. It's a whole idea. Do we want democracy from the West? Western point of view, you're going to want democracy. You're going to want capitalism. You're going to want people to be able to improve themselves. Now you're dealing with a whole different ideology, a whole different years and years of history and culture that is completely opposite to that. Um, The Islamic revolution, their desire is to cleanse themselves in all of these different places that I've mentioned of Western ideas. And I think the thing is that in Afghanistan, people are upset because they've gotten a taste of what it's like to be able to achieve self-improvement, democracy you, I've been reading countless stories from female journalists who spent a lot of time learning journalism and their broadcasters. I read some accounts yesterday of broadcast journalists who had to flee the newsroom because they're not allowed to be broadcast journalists. And, and all of the implications that go with having somebody being the mouthpiece and maybe not saying what the Taliban wants them to say. No, uh, no no boundaries no democracy no none of these ideas so i think that it's dangerous if you believe in capitalism if you believe in democracy if these are your beliefs it's very dangerous um so i think it's very scary and i think that israel tries its best to be a democracy in a place where there are no democracies and every day i think um I think Barack Obama said this democracy is something that it's an act. It's an act. It's something that everybody needs to uphold. It's something that everybody needs to be a part of. So it's sad because I believe in democracy. So it's Mm. it's a scary time in Afghanistan for all of the people who believe in democracy and are now faced with the reality that that is going to be torn down. And I hope that that's a good answer, Mm. diplomatic answer for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is, definitely.
2: Definitely. So as we're getting towards the end, I just want to go back to the land of Israel. And, and we talked about how people think that, um, you know, it's really dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you've you lived in America and you are living in Israel. So you've had the outside looking in as well as the inside looking out. Can you just go through a few more misconceptions that people may have about Israel. I mean, you mentioned another one. You think we're Western, but actually we're Middle Eastern. Think we're dangerous, but actually it isn't. Can you give us a few more, just to adjust people's thinking about this land, which to you, as you said, is home?
1: Well, uh, people think Israelis are rude. Um, And if you are Western, you will definitely think that they're rude. And that's been an adjustment for me um, dealing with that. But at the end of the day, there is something really nice about people being direct and people saying what they want and what they need and uh, asking for it. And so I think that that could potentially be a misconception. Everything is perspective. Like I just said, if you grew up in a Western world and you believe things are to be a certain way and you enter a community that does it, excuse me, differently, then it's going to be like that. Um, Let me think of any other, yeah. I think that people imagine Israel as a war-torn Baghdad 2000 circa early 2000s let's say Mm. um and israel is a thriving metropolitan city uh there are many cities there's jerusalem and there's all different types of communities in jerusalem i think that people misconceive that there are many communities in israel we have Druze which is a, yeah. um, a sect, it's a community that you'll only find in the Middle East. There are Christian Arabs, a lot of Christian Arabs. There are Muslims, and there's a lot of cooperation. There's a lot of collaboration. And I see, I just Saturday, there were some Muslim people on the beach and right next to me, and... Um, There's a lot of different types of faces and colors and diversity here in Israel, which is one of the reasons why I think I can stay. I'm from New York, and there are certain things that I love about New York, like the food and the people. And so I'm really used to having a diverse train ride in New York, you know, Mm -hmm. being next to the brown, white, black um, Hasidic and and all religious, not religious. I, and I need that because I'm a New Yorker and I need, I need that diversity. And so there's a lot of diversity here in Israel, in all parts of the country, in Jerusalem, in Tel Aviv. So I think that's a major misconception. Um, and I also think that people, don't know what kind of Jews live in Israel. There are so many different types of Jews. There are Orthodox. There are modern Orthodox. There are people who are secular. There are people who are in between. And one of the things I'll, I'll end with this one. One thing that I really enjoy about Israel is that it's not necessarily religious. It's culture. It's lifestyle. And I started to keep the Sabbath uh, in 2016 and a lot of people really took issue with it because they felt that I was becoming a religious zealot, like from my secular community. Mm. And I tried to explain that if they would come to Israel, they would probably understand it a little bit better in Israel, as is with a lot of Arab countries. um, A lot of Arab countries, they operate on a Sunday to Thursday schedule. Yeah not a Monday to Friday schedule. So it's like offensive for people in the West that I'm off on Friday and that I'm working on Saturday because they're not used to it. So I think one misconception is that Jews are not just a religious people. We are a culture. We have a lifestyle. Taking off on Friday night and Saturday, going to your parents' home on Friday night for Shabbat dinner. There are so many secular Israelis here who do Shabbat dinner and do not consider themselves religious. This is part of the lifestyle. And I try to explain that sometimes to my Christian friends in the U.S. who don't understand why I'm not going to take the train uh, or, or take the bus on Saturday to visit them, for example. Mm. And they feel that I'm being so pious and I'm trying to explain to them, I'm not being pious. This is my culture. And I've just been extracted from my culture for so many generations. And I've lived in a Christian society. My family has lived in a Christian society for so many generations that we just are operating as such, but it doesn't need to be that we're all religious zealots. Come to where we live, come to our home. This is the lifestyle here. And so I've really, really enjoyed being a part of the Israeli lifestyle working Sunday to Thursday, everyone being off on Saturday and respecting that Saturday is a day off. And, I've just enjoyed being being a part of something that I'm not forcing myself to be in someone else's society. And so I've really enjoyed that. Mm. I think you, you, the key you just said, well, not the key, but I,
2: I was going to one of my closing things and say, you said, come and find out. And, and we would encourage people listening to go when we can when it's possible again to go and find out because we call when we take people out to Israel and we, we often go two or three times a year um, because of what we do, etc. And we often say it's a nation like no other. And I really think Israel isn't. We've been to forty nations, over.
0: We're somewhat qualified to we're say. We're somewhat
2: qualified yeah. to say it is a nation like other, and certainly the whole Shabbat. Um, I think when you're there, it feels natural. If it, I mean, when we go, we don't keep it. We're, we're not Jewish. We're Gentiles, and we're. They, but when we go, it feels like the most natural thing in the world to keep it so it is difficult isn't it to put it into words but we really yeah what you're saying really rings true with us
0: yeah yeah, definitely shanna thank you so much we really appreciate you taking the time for people listening again go to the description box go check Mm -hmm. out her links the podcast whatever else she's doing watch her live stuff and uh yeah thank you so much for taking the time we really appreciate it
1: Thank you so much for having me and giving me this space to share my thoughts and uh, my, my lifestyle. And it's been great speaking with you. Thank you for your work. And thank you for being such citizens of the world.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If it inspired you, please rate us and subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or another podcast platform.